going to a school like Northland uh, is that I have a lot of friends today who live all across the world. Uh, at its peak as a school, I guess you would call it, uh, the uh, statistics were that uh, 70% of the graduating class at Northland uh, were planning to go to the mission field in some form or another. And the result of that is, is that I have friends in Turkey and Haiti and India and Pakistan, and, uh, and it's fun to kind of see how things are going for them. Uh, over 14 years since I graduated, uh, I've had lots of opportunities to speak with these friends. And so we talk about their ministry and the challenges that they're facing. And one of, interestingly enough, one of the most common conversations I have with them is this. It really doesn't matter what their situation. They could be in a city in China. They could be in the backwoods of Africa and Zimbabwe. The people they minister to almost universally believe that every American is a Christian. Now, you and I might think that's a pretty crazy thought. But it's true. Almost universally, they have all told me, they go to these missions field, and the people there believe that every American is a Christian. Now, this has been a problem, for example, for one of my friends in Zimbabwe. You see, Americans, by far, are quite a bit wealthier than the average person in Zimbabwe. And so the people of Zimbabwe think that all Americans are Christians and all Americans are rich. And they think to themselves that the key to being rich, the key to being wealthy is to be a Christian. And they're quite prone, I guess that would be the word I would use, to hearing the false teachings of the prosperity gospel and it makes sense to them. But there's another problem. I have a friend in Pakistan Of course, it's a majority Muslim nation, and so he goes out and he speaks to these Muslim neighbors and and co-workers that he has, and they believe that every American is a Christian. And they look at the things that come out of Hollywood, the things that Americans put on the Internet, and they come to the only conclusion that would be logical for them, that Christians are inherently immoral. This is a problem. Now, there are lots of reasons that people might think this. Of course, America as a nation has been quite impacted by the, uh, the high concentration, if you will, of evangelical Christianity in the history of our nation. And it's, it's impossible to deny the influence of Christianity on our culture, even some of the most anti-Christian people today. They speak, they believe, they act in ways that are certainly uh, because of the Christian heritage that is found in our nation. However, every person in this room should know what is true. Not every American is a Christian. Because you become a Christian by being in covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't become a Christian because you were born in a particular place or time. And if you read all the press, the the idea is is actually fewer and fewer Americans identify as a Christian. This week we come to a passage here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. told you last week there's a passage here, verse 14, that is quite popular during election years. 
And I also told you last week that this text, this chapter, is God responding to Solomon's prayer of dedication in chapter 6. A prayer that is all about God's relationship with his people. And so we come to a verse like verse 14 of chapter 7. We have to note that this promise that we find there in verse 14 starts, If my people... And by God's grace and mercy, you've already put two and two together. Wait a minute. That means, or, or, or that means that verse 14 cannot apply to America or apply to people generally because it's a promise if my people. Only certain people qualify under that heading. Only certain people are called my people. And those people are people who have a covenant relationship with God. That's the bad news. Can't just generally apply this. But here's the good news. This text actually does have something to say to us as Christians living in America today. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. I have three points for you this morning. We call it wisdom for Christians living in a nation, God and country. Number one, the first point I would give to you is this, that the worship of God is critical to our cultural influence. The worship of God is critical to our cultural influence. Let me remind you where we've been in this book. At the beginning of chapter one, we see this dedication service putting God at the center of King Solomon's reign. He has become king. And they have a service to kind of recognize that although Solomon is king, God is central to what is happening in the nation. Then in chapter 2, we see Solomon begin to gather materials to build the temple. And then over the course of 14 to 20 years, not exactly sure how long, but chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 cover a period of time where the temple is built. By the time we get to the end of chapter 5, the temple is built. The ark is in the most holy place, and this grand dedication service has started. Now, again, remind yourself, the original readers of this book, they were reading all about this with all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues, all sorts of tasks they needed to accomplish, especially after coming back to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. And here they are reading about what is probably the apex of Israel's history. And hopefully you've picked up over these last few weeks that this book keeps taking these first readers back to the subject or the critical role of corporate worship. Now our text this morning, starting at the beginning of chapter 7, are the final moments or the final days of this massive, glorious dedication service. Solomon has finished his prayer from chapter 6. And fire comes down from heaven. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. And once again, the worship service has to stop. In response to seeing this, you note, in verse 3, the people begin to worship. They begin to praise and worship God because he is good and his love or his mercy is everlasting. And then we get notes here about the sizable amount of sacrifices that continue to be made. And they make them. And they sing with music because God is good and his love endures forever. 
And then we're told that for seven days they kept another feast or a festival, and they ate, and they ate, and they ate. And then on the eighth day they gathered one more time to worship again together. And then verse 10, we're told, everyone went home glad and merry in heart. Why? Because God is good. Because God had been good to David. God had been good to Solomon. God had been good to the nation as they see this amazing God for who he is. You see, so these first readers, they're surrounded by hostile cultures, completely vulnerable on every side, and they had a question. Is there a future for the people of God? And you and I, we look around at our culture, and we look around at what's going on in the nation that we live in, and we might ask the question, is there a future for the people of God in such conditions? And the answer is yes. But the key to that future is going to be found in worship. Now, here's what this means for you and me, especially during an election year. That if we want to have an oversized impact here in Maxwell, if we want to have an oversized impact in Lincoln County, that's not going to be centered around voting guides or Take Back America brochures. If you really want, as a church, to have an oversized impact in this culture, what we need to do is restore the faithful practice of worship by God's people. If you, today, would like revival... What I mean by revivals, I mean you have Christians who are confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and restoring their relationship with God. If you want to see that happen, then we need the restoration of the faithful practice of God-centered worship. If you want awakenings, and what I mean by that is if you want people to become Christians, if you want people to believe the gospel, people you never thought would be a Christian, people you never thought would believe the gospel... The key to that is going to be the activity of the corporate worship of God by his people. That is going to be the practice of coming together, singing together, praying together, sacrificing together, hearing the word together, eating together, and then going home glad and merry of heart because God is good. And perhaps today you could list out how God has not only been good to you, but he has given, been good to you in the sense that your grandchildren have heard the gospel and believed. Your children have heard the gospel and believed. Because God is good. And you go home merry after mornings like this and evenings when we have our services on Sunday. And we recognize that the electoral success or the electoral failure of this coming November will not bring revival. He will not bring awakening. From the beginning of end of scripture to, to, to the beginning and end of church history, those things always happened through the regular practice of the worship of God by his people. The first readers of this book needed to hear this, that the problems and the issues that they faced were not about walls and homes and politics and military and economics is their need to be faithful, to restore the practice of worship after, after 70 years of having it been abandoned. And so no matter where on earth a Christian lives, this is true. Because our land is not confined to a small piece of property in the Middle East. 
Christ declared that his children had rights to all lands, all cultures, all peoples. Which is why we as Christians, we thumb our nose at any country that says, we're not accepting Christian missionaries. We go anyways. It's our birthright. Our temple is Christ. The church is his body. And we are to gather and we are to worship. And that can happen anywhere on earth. And it will make a difference. Because everything is downstream from here. And it will be noticed. So the worship of God, the corporate worship of God by his people is critical to our influence culturally. Number two. Number two, the second thing I would give you is this, that our sanctification, and I'll explain that word in a minute, our sanctification is to the benefit of the world. Our sanctification is to the benefit of the world. One of the patterns that is, is interesting about Second Chronicles is that there is a short feedback loop. What I mean by that is as you read through Second Chronicles, you'll read when the people of God do something right. They make a good decision. And then immediately after that, you'll read something along the lines of God is going to bless them. And then you'll read a little bit further, and the people of God will make a bad decision. They'll do the wrong thing. And right after that, you'll read about how God disciplines them for making that wrong decision. And and as a reader, you're supposed to understand, God is paying attention to what is happening. His eyes can see, his ears can hear. But this is all summarized for us in verses 12 through 16. In this case, at the beginning of verse 12, the people have done well. They have dedicated the temple. They have come together to worship. They have praised God for his goodness and how his love will endure forever. And because of that, God's going to bless them. He's going to choose this place, this temple, as his house. But then he says to them, should they make the wrong decision, which is implied there, and he should have to punish them, He then follows that with a promise. Every time they repent, every time they turn from their wicked ways, every time they hear and will, uh, every time they confess their sins, he's saying, I will hear and I will forgive and I will restore whatever was taken through this discipline. You see, what I want you to understand is verse 14 is actually repeated multiple times in this book because it is the perfect summary of of sanctification. The people do something wrong. They confess their sin. God forgives them. And they grow and mature by his grace and mercy. That's sanctification. You, being forgiven, and by God's grace and mercy, growing in faith and in maturity, That promise in verse 14 is never applied to the world in general. It is never applied to anybody but my people who call me, who who are, are calling me, my people, who are called by my name. They have a covenant relationship with God that goes all the way back to Abraham. It didn't start at the temple, and it didn't stop after 70 years of captivity. This Blessing, sin, judgment, repentance, restoration cycle is sanctification. This is how God was going to grow and make them more holy. 
But that brings us to verse 16. Here God says that this temple is where he's going to keep his eyes and his heart. Now that phrase, the eyes and heart of God, is used in the Old Testament to describe God's watch care for all of his creation, for all of humanity. You see, what is saying, what's being said here is this sanctification of his chosen people, his people, the change, maturing, growing, and, and, and holifying of his people is actually at the center of what he's going to do for the rest of the world. The normal Christian life contains a pattern of sin, repentance, and sanctification. By God's grace, you, you are going to sin, all right? Every Christian still sins. We still live in our flesh. But you are going to sin, and then by God's grace and mercy, you're going to repent. And by God's grace and mercy, you're never going to go back to that sin again. The promise you have from the Bible is this. That if you have a sin problem, you have a Heavenly Father that loves you, and He's going to discipline that problem out of you. No matter what that problem is, no matter which behavior it is, that sin problem, the promise from your Heavenly Father, is that it will be corrected. And what a wonderful thing when that finally happens. When you're finally free of it. Because everybody benefits. Let me maybe explain it this way. Let's take a Christian man who repents for the last time over pornography. He's finally free of it. God has, by his grace and mercy, has helped him through discipline get away and become more holy. Who then benefits? Well, if he's married and he has children, they're going to be the immediate benefactories of this change in behavior. Now his church is going to benefit because he has grown and matured. He, his sanctification is bringing rich and wonderful things into the life of the whole body of believers. But it doesn't stop there. His unsaved neighbor will benefit. The guys he works with at the rail yard or the accounting firm, they will benefit. It never stays contained. My point is this. Sanctification is for your good. Sanctification that is promised here in this text was for the good of his people. To grow them, to mature them. For you and I who have put our faith in Christ. To make us more like him and to the benefit of our family. To our church family. And guess what? Just like how the poor used to come and pick the grain and, and pick the corn after all of it or the majority of it had been harvested. The world around, of, around us gets some benefit too. So I would say this. It's pretty obvious that for most of America's history, we have had a heavily, heavy concentration of genuine evangelical Christianity. And I would say to you that America has benefited from the salvation and sanctification of God's people. That does not make America the receiver of this promise of sanctification. What it does is it makes America a heavily beneficiary of the grace that God has shown to us. The world around us, this nation around us, has benefited for the fact that God has done amazing things in his people through sanctification. And this country has been blessed because of it. 
And that brings me to number three. Number three, we are dependent on our God for blessing and guidance. We are dependent on our God for blessing and guidance. The rest of this text is very interesting. Starting at verse 17, God is simply addressing Solomon. But as you go through the passage, you note that he's not just saying, Solomon, you have to walk right with me. Because otherwise I will discipline you. Actually, as you go through the text, it's clear that whatever Solomon does, if he departs from walking with God, it is going to have severe consequences on the rest of the nation. It is a reminder that God is going to do what he says he is going to do, but from the negative. Now, if you're the first reader of this book, you know how it unfolds, right? Solomon will at some point stop walking before God. And everything goes downhill. It leads to the end of Israel as a sovereign nation, as promised in verse 20. It leads to the destruction of the temple, as promised in verse 21. People from every walk of life will have their lives ended or destroyed. They'll be taken captive. They'll be led to Babylon for 70 years. Because God's people failed to walk with him. It was a grim reminder. That text is a grim reminder to the first readers, not only what happened, but what could happen again. That it was never about performing. It was never about rule keeping. It was about the response of faith, walking before God. And he says here in the text, God says, as long as you're not chasing after alternative wisdom, as long as you're not trying to serve other gods, as long as you believe me, I will be with you. The blessing of God, the guidance of God, they've always come together. You see, because we believe God says that that salvation through eternal life comes through Jesus Christ. So we believe him, and then we're blessed with eternal life. But let me explain it this way. And I might have shared this before, and I apologize if I have. But I own a movie. It's called Time Changer. It's about a group of men... Uh, They oversee a Bible college. And at the beginning of the movie, they're having a meeting, and one of these men sitting at this table makes a suggestion. Perhaps we could teach the law of God without having to teach God himself. So the idea would be this. So we go ahead and we teach our children that it's wrong to steal, but we don't necessarily tell them that it's wrong to steal because God says it's wrong to steal. Well, of course, it's a fantasy, so one of the professors sitting at that table happens to have invented a time machine. And the professor, who had suggested that maybe it's okay to remove the authority of God, is sent forward in time. And as he walks around our world, he begins to notice that at some point or another, because God had been absent from these things, that nobody was actually interested in keeping God's law. And the point is, is that we as the people of God, we do not follow a generic God, a brand X God. We do not uh, follow generic words or generic truth. You see, if you and I want to love our nation, whether you live here in America or from Canada or Mexico or somewhere else, then we better live. If we're going to love our nation, we better live and teach that there is a specific God. 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has said specific things that must be heard and believed and trusted. You see, to then to take a promise like verse 14 and, and just apply it generally to a nation is actually to reject the gospel of Christ. It is to delve into theological liberalism. Because it takes the God of the Bible who has said specific, it takes out the God of the Bible who has said specific things and inserts a generic God who has said generic things. Now there are things happening in our nation because of a widespread Christianity that has no gospel, which means it has no Christ. And without Christ there's no salvation and there is no rest. So we are a people who are dependent on this God who has said these things. We have always been a people dependent on this God for our blessing and for our guidance to that blessing. Now my hope is, as I gathered this together this week, that this would be a message that I could preach to any Christian, no matter where they're living. No matter what time it is. But we're Christians living in the United States of America in 2020. And these truths remain. If we want to be a people who make noise, who have impact in this time and in this place and in this culture, we better have a renewed commitment to the practice of regular faithful worship together. If we want to, if we want our individual lives to be a blessing and encouragement, both to those inside the faith and outside of the faith, we better be a people who are quick to confess and repent and seek God's face. So that we can be made holy and righteous and more like his son. And if we're going to do as God commands and love the place we are in. We better be a people who live and teach that that God's people have always been dependent on this God. This God of the Bible for blessing and guidance. Not a generic God. Not generic teachings. But the God who so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus who loves specifically, holy. And as the people of this text said, because he is a good God and his love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, for the truth of this text, and I pray that we would be a people who want to impact the place that we are in. That we want to be a people, Father, who are sanctified, who are matured and grown in our faith so that it can be to the benefit of the world around us. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people who understand that we follow this God of the Bible, the God who declared these things to Solomon, who made these promises to his people. Lord, because there, that God is the God who loved the world that he sent his son. Let us hold fast to these truths as people of this nation. Because you are a good God whose love endures forever. Amen.